0: Welcome to The Cutting Floor, a weekly podcast of West Canon Baptist Church. Each week, we'll be looking at topics and questions coming from the Sunday morning sermon passage that didn't make it into this sermon or were worth looking at further. In other words, what was left on the cutting floor. I'm Emily, and with me is Pastor Zach. This week, your sermon covered Genesis 2, verse 18 through 25, which was your final sermon in your mini-series called Being Human. Can you explain the connection between Genesis 1 and Romans 1 that you mentioned in your sermon?
1: Yeah, so Romans 1 is a critical text in the New Testament, particularly as it relates to why God judges the unrighteous. So in the the latter part of Romans chapter 1, Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then he goes on to explain the content of, ...of the various lies that men have believed and that therefore place them rightly under the just wrath of God. And it's in that section that we encounter down in verse 26, for this reason, so among the various sins that God is judging people for, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions... For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And so clearly that text is describing a homosexual sin and that it incurs God's wrath. Now, the great tension in that text is related to this issue of what does Paul mean when he says these things are contrary or they are against nature? And a number of theologians, particularly those who seek to be accepting and affirming of the LGBTQ plus agenda and the conforming that agenda to the church and saying that they're compatible, those theologians would argue that in this text, Paul is saying these things are contrary to nature, meaning the social conventions of the time in which Paul was writing. So because... Um, some forms of homosexual practice in the ancient Greco-Roman world were coercive or abusive, that therefore Paul is condemning a particular form of sin in his social context. But if we want to understand what Paul means by against nature, we have some clues in the text that he's clearly paralleling Genesis chapter 1. So I'll just list a couple of those. He mentions the creation of the world in verse 20 of chapter 1. He also mentions uh, the creator in verse 25. The language of animals, birds, and creeping things in verse 23 echoes Genesis one thirty. And then the Greek in verse 23 of Romans 1 mirrors the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, mirrors the Septuagint translation of Genesis 126, where both passages use the identical words for image, likeness, man, birds, four-footed animals, and creeping things. And then finally, the language in Romans 1 of a lie in verse 25 and of shame in verse 27, and then finally the sentence of death in verse 32 are all clearly allusions to the consequences of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. I'm not the first or only person who has noticed those points of correspondence. Kevin DeYoung really helpfully draws that out in his book, What Does the Bible Say About Homosexuality? The the point that's being made here is that Paul, by alluding to Genesis 1, is clearly saying that what he means by nature is not merely the social norms of his day. Instead, he's saying, by nature, What did God ordain for his very good creation, and that therefore established as a timeless ordinance of God across all cultures, all times, throughout human history, these things represent the moral imperatives for our sexuality.
0: Why do so many of our Bible heroes, like Abraham or Jacob, have multiple wives if marriage is supposed to be between one man and one woman?
1: I think that's a really valuable question for us to consider, and I'd like to— maybe break this down into three brief thoughts. The first is that we can, I think, honestly acknowledge that the Bible does not airbrush its heroes. This is particularly true as we look through the Old Testament where we see more character profiles of men and women of the faith. And as we look through these accounts, we find that there are great men and women who arise, and yet all of them seem to have glaring character flaws or significant moral failures that mark their life which I think establishes a pattern that we would do well to pay attention to, which is that the Old Testament is comprehensively building a case. It's like a prosecutor who's developing their legal case in court in order to win the verdict. And and the the case that's being prosecuted through the Old Testament is this. We need a better hero. It doesn't matter if you're looking at Abraham, if you're looking at Jacob, if you're looking at Joseph, if you're looking at King David, if you're looking at Solomon— You name it, we need a better hero. None of these men, none of these women are the hero that we need that's going to be able to save us. So the Bible, I think, we need to understand is very honest about the flaws of its heroes. Second thing I'd note is that the the patriarchs and then later the kings in Israel— tended to accommodate a lot of their behavior to the ancient Near Eastern cultures in which they lived in. And that was true, certainly, of marriage. We actually read, for example, of in Abraham's case, uh, a man who had multiple wives in the Old Testament, that though he was a friend of God, God actually saved him while he was uh, among his people beyond the river who worshipped foreign gods, as we read later in the Old Testament. And so these patriarchs of the faith were living in pagan environments, many of them adapted parts of their lifestyle to the pagan cultures around them, and so they often did not holistically embrace the beautiful and timeless ordinance of God for marriage that we see in Genesis 1, and Instead instead accommodate, accommodated their understanding of sexuality more to the culture than to uh, God's intent for marriage. And so we see that they are sinful often in the way that they practice their marriage. But I think the third thing we'd then like to look at there is that The Bible also not only doesn't airbrush its heroes, but it doesn't hide the consequences of when its heroes embrace a sinful lifestyle. So we see that there is hardship even in the lives of the biblical patriarchs in breaking with God's good design for marriage. So we see that there's dysfunction that's created in Abraham and Sarah's relationship when Hagar is introduced into the picture. We see that when Jacob marries Leah and then her sister Rachel, that there is now animosity that develops not only between Leah and Rachel, but clearly between the sons of Leah and Rachel. There are generational consequences as a result of the dysfunction in the family unit. Then, of course, we have the instances of David's wives, Michael, who grows to detest him in her heart, Uh, and then Bathsheba and the sin that he commits in not only marrying her, but first in killing her husband Uriah, and then the subsequent loss of their child, and then Solomon. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, that as he grew old, the many wives of Solomon led his heart away from the Lord to worship their gods. And so we see not only uh, that these heroes are flawed, but as they embrace sinful attitudes toward marriage and sexuality, it has spiritual consequences, often grave consequences consequences in their lives. So they don't provide a pattern for us in everything. They provide a pattern for us in faith, but not always in a practice.
0: Since marriage was part of God's good design prior to the fall, will we all be married in the new heaven and new earth?
1: You know, marriage was created between a husband and wife for lifelong permanence. But in some sense, particularly now as we are on the other side of the fall and we do not live forever, it is a temporary arrangement in the context of eternity. So in Matthew chapter 22, uh, the Sadducees approached Jesus in order to try to trip him up. The Sadducees, we read uh, throughout the New Testament, and this is confirmed in history, were a group of religious elites in Israel that differed from the Pharisees in a number of respects, but principally the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection to eternal life. And so in order to try to demonstrate to Jesus That uh, or or to get him to admit that a resurrection was not a realistic um, reality. They present Jesus with this problem where one woman is married to a consecutive group of brothers. Each one dies, and then she marries the next brother. And the question that the Sadducees ask is, well, if there is a resurrection to life, uh, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And clearly they're not actually interested in whose wife she'll be. They're trying to say there's just too many complications with this whole idea of a resurrection. But Jesus works the question around from the other angle he says in verse 30 of chapter 22 for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like the angels in heaven so there this there's a cessation of a husband-wife relationship between a man and a woman in the new heavens and new earth but that doesn't mean that there is absolutely no marriage because we read in revelation 19 9 blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb which i think tells us why Earthly marriage ceases in heaven, and that's because what marriage was impo- uh, was created to point to, I called marriage in my sermon, an embodied metaphor, the metaphor of God's relationship with his people and Christ's relationship with his church, the bride and the bridegroom is consummated in the marriage supper of the Lamb, where there is now this marriage feast and the bride and the bridegroom are united for eternity in Christ and his people, And that also, by the way, explains why there won't be any giving of of people in in marriage in heaven because there's no longer a need to multiply and fill the earth because that will be realized in the Great Commission that through the spreading of the gospel, the image bearers and those who are being conformed into the image of Christ will be those from every nation, tribe, and tongue and that will constitute the family of God that is united in marriage to the Lamb.
0: God says it's not good for man to be alone. What do we do with singleness then?
1: Yeah, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul addresses these and a number of related issues and he speaks from the perspective of somebody who is himself single and is able to use his singleness for advantage for the sake of the gospel. So he actually says in the early part of chapter si- uh, of chapter 7 that he would other Christians be as he is, namely single and able to effectively use their singleness without being encumbered by family responsibility so that they can devote their lives in every way to the advance of the gospel in Christ's kingdom. The point that Paul is making there is that Christ, through his redeeming work, has even redeemed our singleness. So that if you find yourself in, in a condition of being single that doesn't make you inferior or less than, it can actually mean that God has placed you in a unique position in order to more effectively serve him and the work of uh, spreading the gospel.
0: Was singleness something that happened because of the fall?
1: You know, this is a little bit speculative, but my take on this, as I read through the text in Genesis 1 and 2, is that God says it's not good for man to be alone. He then creates the man, or the woman, excuse me, for the man. There's now a one-for-one correspondence between the two. He says that this is now very good. So my belief is that, yes, if there had not been a fall, um, there would always be a match of a man and a woman together, uh, a perfect coupling, and that singleness would not be a reality in our world um, apart from the fall. And it's important to note that we get to the path of singleness from multiple angles, from death that results in widowhood, um, we get to that path through divorce, we get to that path through unwanted singleness of not being able to find a partner, or through Uh, many other different channels, these are all the effects of the brokenness that sin produces in our world. That doesn't mean that somebody is single necessarily as a result of their own sin, but it does mean that singleness is a product of sin working in the world.
0: So then how do we address divorce, especially if God says it's not good for man to be alone and that marriage is part of his good design?
1: This is obviously a really large topic, and the elders have written a white paper topic, or a white paper on this topic. And uh, so, if anyone would be particularly interested in reading a little bit more on this, we'd be happy to share that with them. Uh, I've also myself written a significantly larger paper on this topic. Would be happy to share that as well. Um, I thought about including some statements on this in the sermon, but concluded that the text in Genesis 2 is really highlighting what marriage is for. And divorce is a concession to the brokenness that sin produces in the world and in relationships. And so that being the case, didn't feel like the sermon was the appropriate spot for it. But I'll say just two things briefly. The New Testament acknowledges uh, that divorce is sometimes a recourse that is permissible in a limited set of circumstances because of the brokenness in relationships as a result of sin. Um, Jesus reflects back on the principle that Moses instituted of permissible divorce in certain circumstances. And in Matthew chapter 19, as well as in Mark chapter 10 and a few other places, Jesus gives um, his view on divorce, which is that it is undesirable that God created marriage for lifelong permanence. But in the event of adultery, of sexual infidelity, That divorce is permissible under those circumstances. So we should still pursue, I think, in most cases reconciliation. It's beautiful when that can happen. It's a picture of the gospel and what grace and mercy means. But there is something that happens when the one flesh covenant of marriage has been broken through infidelity that effectively dissolves the covenant such that if one partner, the, the aggrieved partner, the sin against partner determines that they would like to leave, the covenant has already been broken through the Unfaithfulness of the other spouse who has opened the one flesh covenant. The second uh, permissive um, exception that is given in the New Testament is Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, that same chapter we referenced a moment ago. He says that desertion by an unbelieving spouse, in other words, you're married to an unbeliever and they won't consent to live with you and they abandon the marriage, that, that releases or frees uh, the believing spouse to to go on and be not only divorced but remarried. Our view would be that if you are permissively divorced that you are then freed to remarry. We say again, though, the emphasis should be that we should seek reconciliation when possible. And Paul even makes clear, if even an unbelieving spouse is consenting or willing to live with you, you should remain married. It's only when the marriage is untenable through desertion or a flagrant issue of marital infidelity that those the covenant is opened. Otherwise, we need to emphasize this is a promissory relationship, a covenant, and is not meant to be broken.
0: A listener question we received this week was, were there female animals prior to the creation of Eve? I
1: think the answer to that is yes. And the reason is because we see that the animal kingdom is intended to be fruitful and multiply, the same language that's given to the man and the woman. But it's given to the man and the woman before the creation of the man and woman. So on day five, we read that God creates all the sea creatures and birds of the heaven. And then in verse 22 of chapter one, and God bless them, meaning the marine and bird life. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was an evening and morning on the fifth day. God then on the sixth beginning of the sixth day creates the animals. And the idea of this fruitful and multiplication applies then not only to man, but to these creatures that were formed before the creation of man. And therefore they were clearly intended, created each of their kind, male and female, to procreate and be fruitful. I think also we find in Genesis chapter 2, as we looked at this last week, Adam is able to identify as he's naming the animals that each one has a helper fit for it. In other words, they are created together with others, male and female of their kind, to complement them. And it's only in that context that he becomes aware that there is no course one that corresponds to him the way that the animals have each one that corresponds to them. And so that only makes sense if male and female exist as categories of creation prior to the creation of the woman.
0: If you have any questions from the sermon or the sermon passage that you would like to have answered on the podcast, please email them by 8 a.m. on Tuesday morning to questions at westcanon.org. We'll see you next week.